Are you happy with the Vikings performance yesterday? Yeah, it resulted in a win, but the performance was lackluster. It kind of stunk. How did they end up coming out with a win considering their performance? How much can we take that performance from yesterday and project it forward considering the first five games they played significantly better? How does all this matter? How can we contextualize it? And how can we see a path forward for the Vikings still potentially making the playoffs? I'm Fat Hawkinson, and welcome to The Real Forno Show. Welcome to The Real Forno Show, hosted by Tyler Fornis, the managing editor of USA Today's Vikings Wire, writer for the College Football Network, publisher of Substack Run-In Shooter, host of The Good, The Bad, and The Hungry on the Voices of Wrestling Podcast Network, as well as a founding member of Vikings First and Skull. Hello! Welcome to the show. My name is Fat Hawkinson. I'm sorry, I mean Tyler Fornas. With me as always, top right corner. His name is producer Dave. And Dave was telling me during that roll-in, he's drinking bourbon strong enough to kick your mama's butt. What are you drinking, Dave? I am drinking Herman Marshall. Distilled here in Texas. It's at 123 proof. It is uh, extremely good. Can be hey, found at Total Wine and more, in case you're curious. By the way, Total Wine is evil. Um, I don't know if I've ever said that before. Um, but I also worked for like a, a local liquor store. And yeah. But in the meantime, welcome. I am drinking. With my nice little purple daily koozie. Um, yes, I did say Fat Hawkinson. Um, somebody called me that in w- the YouTube comments of uh, uh, one of my Purple Daily on Draft videos, which you can check out on the Purple Daily Podcast Network and YouTube feeds. And I thought it was funny because if you look at me, I kind of look like Hawkinson. And I'm also kind of fat. So it plays off really well. And we're going to celebrate that. With a nice little pumpkin IPA. Yes, it is a pumpkin beer IPA. And it's awesome. Dr. Proto, I feel that. I'm lucky enough tonight tonight where my wife will be home in like eight minutes. And they are actually watching the show right now. I don't know how if they're liking it or not. And I think it's a little weird for them to be hearing me come from two different spots. But they were good for the time that I was out finishing my taxes. Yes, I finished my taxes today, finally. and. Two, they are good when I'm doing the show up here now, which is awesome. Um, All right, so we have a lot to talk about today, and there isn't really anything specific that we have to talk about. So I'm going to start here because we're going to talk a lot about this team, and we're going to kind of use this show as an overarching theme, trying to understand what this performance was and how we can project forward. And this team struggled on Sunday. And it was blatant. No. And I think, I think the first play of the game kind of uh, signified what this is going to be. And I'm talking about the Vikings' first offensive play. And if you, ha- if you don't remember it, you go to my Twitter account or X account, or as I like to call it, the Elon Musk machine at the Real Forno. I just posted a clip of it. And it's a max protect shot play. 
where they run two routes. KJ Osborne's running a backside post and Jordan Addison's running a frontside dig route. So it's just like 10 yards in. And the whole point of that, it's called a pin concept because post and in. All right. So you've got this then you've got the post over the top. So right here where my finger just pointed to that, this safety is what you want to mess with. Okay. So they're running cover two. So they got two safeties. All right. So with your pin concept, this safety, you want to get them to commit. If they are committing up top, then you're, then you're going to look towards the, the in route. But if they go to the in route, then you have the post because there's no up top help here. All right. And then all, all that's happening is the backside. So this backside corner doesn't have any form of leverage and Kirk cousins will have a wide area to throw to. All right. This is a play that's beaten the Vikings defense a couple times. It's also the same general concept where Jordan Addison scored his first two touchdowns this season. Okay. If you remember that Jamison Williams touchdown from what is it like week 13 last year against the lions pin concept. All right. It's to get that safety to bite underneath so you can get them over the top. The Vikings had that. If Kirk cousins wanted to try and manipulate that safety, all he had to do is do a quick little pump fake and boom, go deep over the top. And you could have like a 50 yard chunk play or perhaps a touchdown first play of the game. No, it wasn't. Why a am play. I anticipating a, butt here, it, it was not a bad play, Dave. And I, I want to be clear here. The Vikings got like a 12, 15 yard gain on a nice throw to Jordan Addison. My concern with just that play, you open up with that kind of play, Dave, because you want to make a statement. You want to take advantage of a defense. And Kirk Cousins, with a clean pocket, had all the time he needed to do that quick little arm fake and go over the top. He just settles. It wasn't even an easy throw. It wasn't like uh, Addison was wide open with nobody within five yards of him. It was a capable throw. And I think that really set the tone for what the game was. It wasn't a throw that said, hey, we are going to attack, 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 attack today. It was a throw that said, hey, we're here. And that's it. Like, it, it wasn't inspiring. And I think when you call that play initially and you want to be able to attack down the field and then you don't when it's clear looking at the film that you have the opportunity in this league, you can't wait for something to open up. You can't wait and just hope something opens up. Sometimes you have to do what's called creating your own luck. And there was a play against I think it was the chiefs where they had a corner route and all they had to do was manipulate this shallow corner and throw it over the top of them. Kirk can easily do that. He's shown he can do that. He didn't do that and he doesn't do it here. And I think that's these little nuances are why the Vikings are probably going to move on from Kirk because there's so much more he could be doing that he's capable of doing that he isn't doing. And it's been a, re- a relative consistent. And that kind of set the tone for the game. I've only gotten through a few plays of the offense of all 22 because I was started watching it right before the show, but I thought it was important to note because they had it if they wanted it. And it's obvious that they wanted it because O'Connell called 
a max protect shot play with two receivers out in the route, eight guys in the backfield blocking. So the idea is we want to take advantage. We want to get you down the field. And then you, you throw the shallower route. Honestly, just disappointing. Uh, I wish that we had somebody who wanted to make those throws, manipulate that defensive back so you can get over the top and you can get a huge play. And right now we just don't have that guy. And I think that kind of conservatism on offense set the tone for the day. And it was just honestly a disappointment. And then you saw consistently throughout the rest of the game, the Vikings offense scored uh, 12, excuse me, 12 points today or on Sunday. They got the two field goals. They got the touchdown. And then that extra point was blocked. And then the defense got the touchdown with the extra point. The offense officially scored 12 points. Kind of disappointing. The Bears aren't a good football team. It wasn't a bad weather game. And they weren't able to take advantage of some of those little things. They weren't able to take advantage of a bad Justin Fields. They weren't able to take advantage of a UDFA rookie quarterback who came in in replacement of Justin Fields. Heck, they allowed Bajan to drive down the field, go 10 of 14. Yeah, he only threw for 86 yards, but he's a UDFA. And they were allowing him to do these things. So the fact that they weren't able to smoke the Bears, win by 14 plus, is honestly my biggest concern with this team. And I want to see more. They were up by 13. And the offense, all of a sudden, Dave, forgot how to play football. In the second half, I like the, these are some of those concern elements here. Why did they not know how to play football in the second half? Why weren't they able to move it? Like, where's the disconnect here? Like, this is stuff that you can't be doing against better opponents. And yes, they have played good opponents, but it's not like they've had a lot of fourth quarter success. They've been okay in the fourth quarter. Why aren't we why why aren't we better? And I'm sitting here watching this team and not understanding like what's going on. They're being put in positions to succeed. This offense, like people will say play calling is bad. No, the play calling is pretty good. The play calling is creative. They're getting guys in space, giving guys opportunities to catch passes deep giving opportunities to get really big chunk plays. And we're not capitalizing on it. So I don't think it's a play calling issue. I think it's an execution issue. And it's overall, Dave, uh, I'm going to let you go here in a second because I need a sip of my beer. Because if there's one thing I love during fall, it is pumpkin beer. It's just inherently frustrating. This could be so much better than it is. And it's just not. I agree. Hey, my worthless opinion asks, why are they not catching the ball? To me, that's a focus issue. (laughs) I mean, some passes have been high fingertips, you know, behind, whatever. They're not perfect passes. But Kirk's passes, for the most part yesterday, were on target. The ones that he did, and people are just dropping. We talk about Alexander Madison who has dropped quite a few balls this year. And a lot of them are because they are almost perfect passes. He looks, sees the ball coming, puts up his hands, 
and then he peeks to see where mm-hmm. he's going next. And by not following the ball all the way into your hands, you risk that moment, momentary fraction of an inch where you're off and it bounces off or goes to the chest and bounces off. And it's, it's frustrating. I don't know if it's not enough yelling at players. I don't know what it is. And every player is motivated differently. You've got to find those buttons to push them to get it to go right. Because they shouldn't be dropping this many passes. We talked about TJ Hawkinson, who had a decent game yesterday, uh, dropped one. And people are saying, well, you know, Detroit warned us. That's what he does. Well, if we remember last season, he came in and he was glue for the most part. And yet this season, yes, he got his contract, but he hasn't caught as many or as many contested that we would expect of him of that nature. Norris Fias, thank you so kindly for that $10 super chat. You absolutely rocks. Thank you. Uh, um, so I want to point this out, Very Dave. Very good that, back word. Maybe it, Norse uh, I, I want to point this out here real quick because I, I know we're talking about drops from that my question from my wrote this opinion. Um, so, so far on the season, uh, Pro Football Focus has charted the Vikings with 17 drops. Now, 17 drops across six games. That's slightly under three per game. That's okay-ish. It's not well, great. What's normal? I mean, every every wide receiver, tight end, running back drops a football now and then. Mm-hmm. That's normal football. It's just like every lineman gives up a, you know, a bad blocking play. What is normal? What's the normal level of drops compared to the rest of the league? A dr- a normal ish drop percentage is around like five to six. Okay, so if you have six hundred passing attempts, which Kirk Cousins was a little higher than 600 last year. So 600 at 6%, you're looking at 36 drops over the course of an entire season. So that would be kind of what, what your rate um, is. And like, and that's based on targets. So that's why we used attempts and not completions. All right. So right now the Vikings have um, 231 targets through uh, six games, according to Pro Football Focus, and their drop percentage is going to be a little bit different than somebody else who charged drops because it it just it matters more. Sorry, I, I have I was looking at the wrong chart. Um, targets, uh, two hundred and twenty-two targets, and a drop percentage of I'll I'll pull that up here in a second. David Rinaldi says TJ's drop rate is only 2.1%. It's a little higher than that. Um, 7.69%. So it's a little higher than normal, but I wouldn't call it absurd. Um, Hawkinson has charted so far this season um, with four drops on... I I wish they were closer. Um, Four drops on 46 targets. So you're looking at about 9%. 8.69. 
So that's a little high, but it also what constitutes as a drop is going to differ from person to person. Those catches that Hawkinson missed against the Kansas City Chiefs, Dave, I wouldn't count any of those as drops. They're tough catches. They're catches he should make. I would not count any of those as a drop because they're just difficult catches away from the frame that are contested. Like To me, that's not a drop. And Aaron, I agree. If it hits you in the hands, you should catch it. But I also think that doesn't mean it's a drop because making a difficult catch is different from, hey, he, like the beer is the football. It hits me in the hands. It's right in front of my body. It's an easy catch. If I drop that, well, one, I'd spill my beer. But two, I would classify that as a counted drop. And I think that is the difference between what public perception is on drops and what the, how drops are charted as statistics. And Hawkinson has four. I believe he was charted with three against the Kansas City Chiefs. And I'm going to confirm that right now. He was charted with two against the Chiefs, one against the Chargers, which I'm assuming is the touchdown, and one against the uh, Bears, which I think was that one he was extending to go get. I, I, I'd i no. have a hard time calling the three of those four actual drops. And now my guess is... Um, David Rinaldi is saying his drop rate is 2.1%. If you're not counting those three as, as drops like PFF did, then that would be spot on. And that's where like my, my overarching point here, David's perception of what a drop is, is different from what TJ Hawkinson's, or sorry, what pro football focus is, uh, believes a drop is. So that difference matters. And that's why, you, I always say, watch the film, watch it and determine, okay, why is it a drop? So what is he doing wrong? Why did he drop the football? Were there outstanding variables that matter to helping him drop the football? And I think that's, that, that's a big part of it. And Narcissus is absolutely correct. You're paying him to catch those footballs. I'm not going to panic based on a two game sample size but I completely understand the frustration. He should be like each individual. Um, Arif Hassan said it best. Uh, the wide left Substack, Minnesota football party. Um, Arif's a fantastic dude. Also hosts a nurse code. Each of those individual plays you can like individual merit. Oh, that's not a drop. But then when you compile them, it's fair to be frustrated that he's not catching them. And I think both things can be true. And I think Sometimes with football analysis, that nuance gets lost. And I think Arif put it uh, really, really nice because it's one of those things where, hey, you can do that. Like, you, we can have nuance here. That's why you're here. You appreciate honest nuance and, of course, a little bit of booze. <laughs> now, there are some. I'm not trying to make excuses. There have been a couple, especially with TJ's, where I've seen the defender flash across his face right before the ball gets there. And if and this is a technique you try to teach to defenders, that if you can block their vision, that messes up with them catching the ball. I.e., you always want to watch the ball into your hands. Well, if you physically can't see it, 
you're mm-hmm. going off of your brain's going off of last seen trajectory and you're hoping yep. to, you catch it that way. That also plays a little bit of a part into it, but it is. I'm curious, David, where'd you get your stats? I wonder based on what I'm looking at, if that's from next gen stats. Could be. Could be. Yeah. Um, so let's uh let's move on because there's a lot that we can talk about here and and I want to keep 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 looking at it. Um Tito wire. Mm-hmm. What's Tito wire? Ever heard of it? Oh, roto wire. Okay. Oh, David must be on his phone. Okay, that okay. that makes some sense. Um, because I I could totally see um the phone auto correcting that. Um, Patrick, Wes Phillips is to Kevin O'Connell what Kevin O'Connell was to Sean McVay, and what I mean is the offensive coordinator does a lot. Now they don't call the plays, but they're incredibly involved in game planning and um, organizing the playbook. Um, creating new plays and installing the offense. It's just on game day. They are in more of a consultant type role where they're watching everything play out and they're communicating with O'Connell. They're communicating with the team, the other coaches. And he is basically gathering all the information from all the assistant coaches that are also gathering their info as well in their position groups. And then they're relaying it. So he does a lot, but the problem is like, and um, please correct me if I'm wrong with how you're insinuating this. It doesn't seem like Wes Phillips does much at all because we don't see it. And we, we know he doesn't call the plays and it can be an overlooked thing because it, it's hard to t- be tangible with the process that an offensive coordinator doesn't call plays actually does. Um, Mateo thinks that he should give up play calling. Ooh, I, I'm going to disagree. Um, I think his play calling is really good. I think the execution has been poor and that's kind of what we're, we're going to continue talking about here. Um, yeah, but I, I understand where Mateo's coming from because 100%. if it frees him up to see a bigger picture and Wes Phillips is calling same plays, creative plays, all that stuff. And then he can interject whenever he wants to put anything. I think that might be a benefit. That's I, that's why I would like to see Wes Phillips call a regular season game and see if we see a difference. Yeah. And I think the difficult part about that, Dave is one. I agree with you. I would love to see him call a game to kind of see how things work out, but each game is so inherently different that it, I think it would be difficult to truly understand um, some of the nuances and, and understanding his play calling based on what you want to see and how I'm interpreting what you're saying. And I think that's the difficult part is you kind of have to call plays for a significant period of time to really see what kind of play caller they are, because then you're going to start to get tendencies. How do you adapt when I figure out your tendencies? What do you change? How are you willing to grow and evolve? I think those things are, are really important. And Patrick, I'll say this and then we're going to move on here. He doesn't get any blame for any of the offensive issues because the buck stops with O'Connell. O'Connell's an offensive-minded head coach. So we aren't going to, like, unless we directly see it, Wes Phillips ain't getting the blame. It's going to be O'Connell. O'Connell's not going to outwardly blame Wes Phillips. 
And I think that can be really difficult for us as fans and analysts without being in the building and really seeing the process work and all those things. I think that matters. And I think that is, excuse me, something that we're just not going to know. And it's just going to be the unknown. And I'll leave it at that because I want to talk about this defense. And we've already been going for almost a half hour. And we've basically just been BSing the whole time. And this is what makes this show great. We're talking Vikings football. We're answering questions in the chat. And we're, we're trying to paint a picture of what's going on in this, uh, in this really weird football team. But I want to start off with this and I want to thank everybody here for joining live tonight and listening um, back either on the YouTube feed or our podcast feed. I recommend you take a look at our YouTube subscription platform, three, six and $15. And we're going to start ramping that up here pretty quick. Um, Dave is, his birthday has passed. So, uh, we we let well we kind of let him celebrate and then we yelled uh, about Kirk Cousins and Mike Florio with Judd to to finish it off. Um, we're going to start doing a little bit more there. We are going to, uh, and it's just an easy way to support the show, just like how Norsevius did with his ten dollars super chat. Easy, easy peasy, and we greatly appreciate you. And we're going to start giving you some really fun stuff. Draft seasons when you're going to get the most because there is going to be a lot of fun draft content. And it's going to be a good, good time. And I will say, if you want to sponsor the show, please let us know. We are looking for sponsors and we are appreciative of everybody that has taken a look at our show here tonight. Hey, and it's a good way to ride with the team as we go on to win the Super Bowl this season. Mm -hmm. And we're shooting for our goal right now is by the NFL draft. 3,500 subscribers on YouTube. That is the goal. And if you haven't subscribed, please do. We want to keep growing this and we want to make this the best spot for Vikings content out there in the blogosphere. Now, Dave, how great is it to have a defense that really gave the Bears fits. Now, they ran the ball plenty well, but the Vikings defense overall looked really good. They were stifling. They were aggressive. They forced turnovers. Now, they they did allow uh, some drives, but they held their own. And I thought that that was really important. I did too. Hey, I I love the aggression. Now, defense against the run needs to pick up, but I love the aggression. And there were some star players on Sunday. Yes, there were. Um, It was... (sighs) What's the easiest way to put this? I think the biggest stars are the players who are playing the most. And... Sometimes that's not always the case, but I do like that we are starting to really see some production from guys like Josh Metellus. Look, I'm eating a big fat L on Metellus. I thought he was cuttable, and I thought that the idea of Metellus, considering what you also had on the roster, I thought they would move on from him. 
I was wrong. They gave him an extension. So I'm eating a big fat L there. And he has played really well. He's played really smart and instinctive. And that has continued throughout the entirety of the season. And hats off to him. He's been great. And he got the strip sack. And it's been really, really fun to watch him kind of grow and develop. And now the idea of Lewis seen was going to be the hair apparent to Harrison Smith. Maybe it's Metellus. Like, it, yeah, I'm not giving up on scene. It's not looking great right now. It is not. But I will say, like, Metellus right now is just better. And Bynum's played out of his mind. Like, this is a really good safety room. And Metellus being that guy and being trusted to play in the box with only one linebacker and Jordan Hicks, that matters here. That matters a lot. And it's been really fun to watch him grow and develop and for him to get that strip sack. And I, what I thought was really cool, I don't know if you noticed it on the broadcast, but he goes to scoop up the ball and he sees Jordan Hicks like bulldozing down towards it and he stops and just lets him pick it up and then follows him to try and make a block. Unselfish too. The reason why he's a captain. And look, hey, Norseus, I'm I'm taking it out eating crow. It's it is all the same thing. And look, I was wrong. And some people don't think I admit that. No, I'm, I'm more than capable of admitting. I was wrong. And as I adjust because my butt hurts on the 700 hard chair, I still don't get it. Um, This defense creating takeaways is huge. Dave, they had three takeaways today or on Saturday, Sunday. I I have my days completely wonky. It's only Monday. (laughs) Three takeaways. They had three in the previous five games. So that's a little unsustainable, right? It's most likely. Yes. But they also turned it over once. It should have been twice. That fumble should have been a fumble. The Vikings got very lucky. And you know what? I'm fine being on the good end of luck but I'd rather not be on the good end of luck. And I'd rather just be a correct call every time because at the end of the day, it's going to balance out. And I think at the end of that possession, it was that, did we turn the ball over again on that possession or was it the next possession that we threw that interception? Because if we just turned it over right then and there, then it's like, Ooh, buddy, that's not great. I need a beer. I don't remember which I know it was shortly afterwards, but it's yeah. And that's frustrating, but I, it is frustrating. And I'm looking at everything and like, let's take a look at some of the raw defensive stats because the pro football focus grades are in. You can go look at all of them broken down by, um, what do you call it? By actual grade. Uh, I haven't posted at vikingswire.com. Um, but biggest thing is they've been good. The Vikings, that is like the defense has been. Relatively nope, uh, speaking. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So it, it was classified as a fumble. Um, it was not on the same drive. 
Okay. But yeah, it's uh I don't even remember what I was saying. Defense was good. Yes, it was. Uh, and I want to talk specifically about the pass rush for a minute. And I'm excited to get to the defensive film after I finish the offense. No, the wife and I are going to um, watch some TV tonight because we've got um, Kitchen Nightmares and you know, last night's Big Brother, which we've been watching a lot of recently. Um, but Daniel Hunter. Daniel Hunter, this is why you paid him. Two sacks for Mr. Daniel Hunter. And I'm not entirely sure how many pressures he had yesterday. But he has 21 on the season through six games. Dave, that's not bad. Um, He had four total pressures, two of them being sacks, uh, five tackles. Like Hunter is just an absolute disruptor. And it's great to see. I'm very happy with where Daniel Hunter is right now and what he's currently doing. Like this is why you paid him. And I'm going to be really intrigued to see if the Vikings end up trading him because look, we we're trying to be positive and the Vikings have been playing relatively well. Obviously they did it on Sunday and we are talking about that, but there's a chance that Daniel Hunter gets traded and he has the highest value. Mm hmm. If you have the right team, you could get a first-round pick. I don't think he fetches a first. I think it's like a second plus, and you get a little bit extra on top of that. But maybe you have a condition on there where it's like, okay, second-round pick, and then if you, w- if you win the Super Bowl or make it so far in the playoffs, then bada-bing, bada-boom. You get... Um, you get that first-round pick. And I think that is going to be something where you kind of look at it and be like, okay, it makes sense. And just kind of like looking at the trade deadline and we'll have probably a trade deadline show where we kind of just break down just trade deadline stuff and be like, Hey, what could the Vikings do X, Y, and Z? And Hunter is probably going to be on the list, but he's been really impressive. Marcus Davenport gets injured again. And here's the annoying part, Dave. It's his other ankle. It's he got rolled up on, which in. It's going to be really annoying to hear the discourse around Marcus Davenport. It looks like a leg whip, but not a roll up. Yeah. Okay. So a leg whip. And that's what injured his ankle. Like it, he wasn't doing anything dumb. It was just a freak accident. And it's frustrating. And it's actually frustrating that it's his other ankle. Not even the one he got injured prior. So now he has injuries to both ankles. Ankles of glass. He, at least they're not shattered. And they're just <laughs> Um Yeah, it's it it's very frustrating. And like DJ Wanham is one of the best pass rushers in the league when you don't block him. But otherwise, he doesn't really provide you a ton of value outside of that. And Patrick Jones, the second, is still too limited for where his development's at. And I wish he was farther along. He should be farther along. So edge rusher looks like it could be a real priority here in the uh, NFL draft. But it's 
this defense played really well. They played cohesive. They were getting pressure against the whatchamacallit. Um against dub bears. Um I, I just love saying it, Dave. Dub bears. Now I think Dub Davenport, Bears. if he isn't already, and I don't believe he is, needs to go to a high top cleat. And then the they wrap the heck out of it. Okay. Just it, it gives a player added support around the ankle, which helps. Yeah. That's one reason combat boots are boots. They want the extra ankle mm. support. That makes sense. So I'm taking a look at the pressure numbers from PFF right now. Davenport has basically played two and a half total games. He's got seven pressures. He's seventh on the team. But it's Hunter with 21, Wanham with 14, Harrison Smith, Patrick Jones, and Josh Metellus each have 10. Like, this team is getting pressure from a lot of different sources. Um, And I I really like that. I think having different players involved in the pass rush and being able to attack from a lot of different angles and and with this defense, you don't really know where people are coming from, Dave, because it's a very aggressive unit and they run all kinds of exotic blitzes and be, and they can attack you every which way. So I like that. And I think it's nice, but edge rusher is going to be a really, really important position for the Vikings to focus on this next off season. They're going to have to that in the defensive line, they're going to have to spend some real asset dollars there. And whether that be high draft picks, whether that be free agency trades, they're going to have to do something and we'll see what that something is. I agree. Mary pointed out that uh, both the Eagles and the 49ers lost this week. There are no more undefeated teams in the NFL. Yeah. Last, last, this past week of football was stupid. It was crazy. It was wild. It was unpredictable. And that's the nature of the NFL. And do you want the 49ers coming off of a loss or would you rather have them coming off of a win so you can maybe sneak in and be able to take that and steal it like the Browns did? Yeah, you probably want that. At the end of the day, you get the 49ers. And they're not going to be healthy. Uh, Debo is day to day. So is Trent Williams. And Christian McCaffrey is likely going to miss the game with an oblique. That's good. And the one thing that that and we're going to talk about the 49ers here a little bit on Wednesday, and we're going to talk about them more in the officially unofficial pregame show next Monday night leading up to the game. (laughs) The big thing here, Dave, Brock Purdy in man coverage. I'm going to read this off to you because in man coverage this past week against the Browns. So he faced um. Man coverage on 71% of all dropbacks. Brock Purdy went 6 of 19 for 51 yards. Dave, that's that's really poor. Like, And the Vikings do a decent amount of man. Um, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but historically, Brian Flores has averaged around 50% man coverage. Why? Blitzes. The blitz. You have to play man coverage with those with those kind of blitzes. And can they actually stop Brock Purdy? I think so. Because the thing with Brock Purdy, he is not exceptionally talented, but he he's in the perfect situation. 
he can just take the ball and fire it to certain spots. And Kyle Shanahan can basically design an offense that's foolproof. It's one of the reasons why Jimmy Garoppolo was so successful. It's the same construct. And the idea of drafting Trey Lance was, oh, I can get him to function in this construct and I can get extra stuff too. Didn't work out that way. And I think the Vikings have a decent shot at beating the 49ers if they're able to do some of those things. And I'm very excited, Dave, to see if they can pull it off. Because it's going to be a difficult matchup against one of the best teams in football. But we'll find out and we'll talk more about it here as time goes on. And lastly, let's let's kind of finish off this conversation about the Bears. Um, the Bears themselves are not a good football team. And we know that. But the fact that they were hanging in there with the Vikings, um, it's a divisional battle. And the Vikings just played very poorly. It's very weird, Dave, how the arguably the two worst games the Vikings have played both ended in losses. Or sorry, both ended in wins. And their best performances all ended in losses. That's because Kirk gets two touchdowns behind and he opens up the throttle. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Um, It's the only way I can explain it. Any apprehension he has goes out when he's coming from behind. He tends to, all right, now I'm going to start pushing it down the field. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. He plays conservative up until they're two scores down. And it's almost a a prevent style of mindset where he wants to, you know, get the lead, keep the lead, not do anything to jeopardize it. Whereas if he's behind in the game, it's like, let's go. I want that. Let's go, Kirk. Playing every weekend from the moment that first whistle goes off and the kick is airborne. I want to see Kirk Cousins with the let's go type of attitude and come Mm -hmm. out there and throw the rock and hit targets and drive the field, move the team, not be lackadaisical. You don't know where everything's at. Have a purpose. And we're not seeing it this year. And on the two games we won, we didn't see it at all. And he had his two worst games. And I think that's, to me, I've I've thought a lot about that yesterday, last night, and this morning, because I was frustrated over yesterday's game. But to me, that's what I see from him. It's that, that whole, he plays conservative all up until he's down by two, and then he lets things rip and it's, I want to let things rip from the beginning. Kirk, I don't know if they can pull him out of that sort of mode. I hope they can. He's still a decent quarterback. He's a good quarterback. We, we could do a lot more if he did. And you mentioned it at the beginning. If he's sitting there on that first play and it's a pin play. If he sits there and goes, Oh, I got this guy because he does know how to manipulate safeties with the double pump or whatever, which he does a lot of times when he's not wanting to. Boom, he hits it deep and we're off to the races. Mm -hmm. But no, he stayed conservative. Let me throw it underneath to Addison. 
that's the more sure throw or completion, hopefully. And he goes on from there. That's the difference I see. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the reasons why we're looking at other quarterbacks. And, and let's finish it off by talking about that because uh, news broke Saturday afternoon that Quasi Dofamensa was at Notre Dame Stadium to watch USC and Caleb Williams, the presumed number one overall pick in the NFL draft, take on the Fighting Irish. I don't know if it was directly for Caleb Williams, but it definitely didn't hurt. And if it's a marquee game in college football, you're going to have a lot of prospects. I would project anywhere from five to like 10 or 12 players from both of these teams combined get drafted this year. And it all depends on who comes out, yada, yada, yada. And there's, there's a lot of variables there, but Notre Dame's got a couple of really nice tackles. They've got a nice edge rusher. They have a running back. Who's really talented. They have a quarterback who could end up getting drafted on day three. And then you have USC with multiple receivers who are talented. Marshawn Lloyd in the backfield. And of course, Caleb Williams. And then they have a really good safety in Kalen Bullock. So you have talent and South Bend. I didn't realize how far North South Bend was. Uh, <laughs> South Bend is only an hour and a half from Chicago. I always thought South Bend was in Southern Indiana. Like the way my brain like thought it was. No, it's in Northern Indiana. And they, uh, they just took the hour and a half drive, went over there. Smart play. Absolutely smart. Now, I did hear that Quasi sat there and talked to the Notre Dame coach after the game, or quarterback after the game for quarterback. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Look, Sam Hartman is a very interesting individual. He had a rib removed uh, from his body, and he is making it into a necklace. Um, And I will say say this. um, Ezra Cleveland did uh, suffer what they're calling right now a mid-foot sprain. We don't know anything more than that. And I watched uh, uh, Risner's um, play. He was fine. But as we kind of talked about in this show, he was not good enough to end up taking over that spot. And I think they were right in not playing him because Cleveland and Ingram were playing well. Nano Joe, thank you. Thank you very much for the super chat. Um, Conspiracy theory, the last three Super Bowl logo colors all had teams with those colors playing in the Super Bowls. Look, if you want to believe in the conspiracy theory that the NFL is rigged, that's that's going to be an interesting point. <laughs> it's a weird coincidence. Yeah, because it's red and purple. Yeah. So, Quasi going over there is really smart. I don't think it necessarily means anything because general managers need to go to like games. It's not just that you talk to other general managers, you talk to scouts, and you're able to get eyes on players. And you trust scouts who live this, who travel for it on a regular basis to these places. But at the end of the day, you still need to have a semblance of yourself. So you still end up going out and watching these guys play live. And it could end up meaning something. It could mean nothing. But the fact that they went to South Bend when they were in Chicago is just smart because geographically it makes sense. And it's maximizing your resources. So, we're going to leave it at that, and we're going to end the show a little bit early tonight because, well, we're kind of tapped out. We've talked about plenty. We're going to have more on Wednesday, and we're going to have a really good conversation about the NFL, about the Vikings, and I think we're going to talk more overarching themes. I'm going to get some like stats, and we're going to talk about it. I think we might end up doing is talk about like um, 
different narratives around the team and, and do like a factor myth style and present arguments, whether it is or isn't. And I think that could be a really fun exercise. And then we're going to spend Monday's show previewing the game with some hard hitting stuff. Outside of that, thank you very much for joining. Don't forget to join us again Wednesday night, 6 p.m. Central Time. And you don't forget to join Dave's show with Darren, two old bloggers, every Saturday afternoon at 4 p.m. This week, I'm taking over the pregame show because I can. Well, it's only because it's Monday Night Football. But I, I'm I'm framing it how I want. Uh, and we're going to have ourselves a really, really fun week here. And don't forget all my written work at vikingswire.usatoday.com. Until then, thank you so very much for watching, for listening. We appreciate you all. Skull Vikings. Skull Vikings, baby. Like. Subscribe. And ring the bell to get notifications. It helps us grow this community. And we all love our Minnesota Vikings. And on behalf of Tyler Fornis and myself, Dave Stefano, thank you so dearly for watching the Real Forno Show. Skull, everyone! This has been a Vikings First and Skull production. Part of the Fans First Sports Network.